so glad that you came this morning to be a part of Outward Church and uh, to worship with us or to be a part of the worship service. If you're not uh, currently someone who understands or knows or maybe even wants to know Jesus right now, we're just glad that you're here and that you're, uh, that you're here to just observe. And so thank you for coming and you are uh, so welcome to be here. We're just, we're glad that you came and that you gave us uh, a try. So uh, thank you for that. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 and, and following. And so you can be turning there. Uh, but this morning, what I really want to get at and what I really want to talk about and what I want to get to is this, is, is what are you really after? What are you really after in life? Are, are, are you searching for ultimate happiness? Are you, are you searching for some type of meaning in your life and some type of purpose for something that actually matters? The scriptures, we believe, fully promise this. But really what gets in the way so many times is our unabashed pursuit as Americans of happiness, which is oftentimes what we call the American dream. And the American dream is essentially this desire and this passion to find happiness, uh, sometimes at all costs, to, and, and more than sometimes, at, at all times, to find this happiness, to find this, this sense of well-being, to find this ideal that we'd love to see happen. And, and we have this picture in our mind of what true happiness might look like. But the, the thing is, is that it becomes more and more unattainable as we continue to search for it and as we content, continue to desire it. Many people find themselves just degenerating and degenerating further and further into this abyss of constantly looking to be somebody who is happy. And so we go after the things that are a part of the American dream we go after the, the lifestyles that are represented there, and we go after those things, and we search for them, and we search for them without really finding a way to truly ever be happy. We, we come to this place where it's like, I, I, I thought that this was going to be the thing that was ultimately going to make me happy. I remember having a goal in my professional life and saying, I will be happy when I reach that goal. And in fact, my wife said to me, uh, one day she said, what's it going to take for you to finally say, okay, I've made it, uh, to, for you to finally say, like, I'm there. And so here I am as a pastor, still in the midst of this and just saying that I also find myself in this idea of the American dream and searching for happiness and trying to find something that's ultimately going to mean everything to me. But then it's like I, I, I set the goal here, and then if I attain it, I go, I, I've made it. But there's just something about that that is not fulfilling me, and it's not giving me what I want. It's not giving me ultimate joy. And Jesus has a plan. And Jesus has an ultimate plan. God has created this universe. God is the one who has created all things He's ordered life. And you might say, well, life seems really disordered. But let me just tell you this, that you and I are not God. And we don't get to determine what is out of order, what is disorder, and what isn't. 
Because God ultimately has this world in his hands and he's ultimately in charge and he, he is the creator. We saw this last week and he is and he is and he is. He is everything and as such, he has something for us that you and I know nothing about oftentimes because we're searching for it and even within the church, we find ourselves searching for something that we can't seem to find. And so the, the old uh, song by U2 comes up, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, one of my favorite songs of all time. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. People are constantly searching and searching. In fact, this is what's been in the news a little bit lately. A couple of articles for you from the Huffington Post. Name of the article is The Problem with Happiness. And it says this, asked what is the fundamental objective of life? The vast majority of people answer quickly and definitively happiness. They're searching for happiness. Their lives are organized around trying to be happy. Sounds good, right? Sounds even better when you read about the scientific benefits linked to happiness. There's all these things that are linked to happiness, like you have better relationships and you sleep better and you're more creative and, and you're more generous and all of these things. If I could just be happy, if I could just attain this, then I would, I would finally be there. It says this, but there is a not so hidden problem. The United States is obsessed with happiness. The United States is obsessed with happiness. There are cultural pressures to be happy. It talks about all the books, the people who are being trained to train other people to be coaches in order to be happy. It goes on, a few scientists started to study this phenomena. What they found is that as people place more importance on being happy, they become more unhappy and depressed. The pressure to be happy makes people less happy. Organizing your life around trying to become happier, making happiness the primary objective of life, gets in the way of actually becoming happy. The greater emphasis put on happiness, the least successful they were at obtaining it. It didn't matter how happiness was defined. People putting the greatest emphasis on being happy reported 50% less frequent positive emotions, 35% less satisfaction about their life, and 75% more depressive symptom, symptoms than people that had their priorities elsewhere. This idea of happiness is all throughout our society. And it's in every single one of us. In fact, some of you decided to come to church this morning because you're unhappy. Some of us are sitting right here because there is this thing that we call the American dream that seeps into the idea of if I'm right with God. In fact, I just saw it on a show the other day. Something good happened to one of the characters, and one of the other characters said, did you go to church? There's this idea of, like, if something good happens to me, it's because I must be living right. I must, be, I must be going to church enough, or I must be submitting to God on some level. And so God is here to make me happy, and if I'm with God, then I will be happy, and things will get better for me, which ultimately leads to disillusionment because of this. God didn't save you so that you'd be happy. God saved you so that you would be holy, and in that holiness, you would find your joy. But happiness as a word, I debated as to whether I would even, as to whether I would call this sermon either 
Jesus saves me from happiness or Jesus saves me from the American dream because of this. Our idea of happiness, even though there is happiness and joy in knowing and loving Jesus and having relationship with him, the truth is, is that our idea as Americans has seeped into the idea of happiness and we have put labels on what it looks like to be a Christian and we said this is what it means to be a Christian is to experience happiness in these ways. And so we tell God, God, as long as I do these things, then this is what you will do. That comes straight out of Matthew Porter 1.1. Right? Or second hesitations. Something like that, right? It, it, it comes from my Bible of me that I have created this and that God, as long as I'm living for you, then these things will take place. But... Did you ever stop to think about what the Son of God himself went through? That he, as the perfect man, being the God-man, fully God and fully man, lives perfectly his life here. And yet he experienced ultimate suffering. And then do you forget what the Apostle Paul went through? And do you forget what most of the apostles went through, in fact, all of them to some degree or another, most in death. And did you forget what God's people throughout the Old Testament went through? God's prophets and his leaders being killed and God's people being persecuted. Did you forget this? And here's the thing. God hasn't saved you so that you wouldn't experience suffering God has saved you so that you would experience suffering differently. God has saved you so that you would experience suffering differently, but in a new way. Let's look at the passage here. The passage says this, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. In Christ. Now, this passage has several different ideas that all have a 
theme that's running through them. And the theme is Christ. The theme is Christ going through this passage. And if you miss that, you miss everything. The theme is Christ and the goal is maturity. The goal is to come to some sort of maturity. He says there towards the end, verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, I say that, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And why he's saying that is this. Because there are innumerable people around them who are bringing them uh, idea after idea, theologies of prosperity, perhaps, ways to live, spiritual things to do, people to listen to, things, things, things to hear, things to talk about, philosophy, this idea of worshiping angels, all of these things. It is this conglomeration and this, this ball of wax that is so full of spirituality and philosophy and knowledge and all of these things. And here's the thing, that so many of those things to them in that day, so many of those ideas seemed plausible. They seemed like ideas that would work. And in the same way, today, we have many, many people who come with voices and say to us, like, there's another way to do this. There's another way to live. There's another way uh, to, to do life. And so we try to take all of these things and we wrap them up and we say, I'm going to take all of these things together and I'm going to live my life in this way. You can see it on our Facebook post, perhaps the quotes that you post. I'm listening to this person, but I'm also listening to this person. And this seems good, so I'll take that. And this seems good, so I'll take this. And so we're always after this, and we're never attaining it. And what's happening is this, is that these people are listening to plausible arguments. But the argument from Scripture is this, is that Christ is the only way to experience true knowledge, true wisdom, true community. Look at what he says in chapter 2. Verse, uh, verse, verse 1 and following says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and that's the assurance of knowing God, the assurance of knowing that you will be with him forever, of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ." And he's saying this, he's saying, like, I want you to experience these things. Like, that your hearts are going to be knit together in love, and that there's going to be true community. And that there's going to be true understanding, and that there's going to be true wisdom, and that there's going to be true knowledge, rather than all of these other things that are going on there. Because the claim from the scriptures is this, and that is that God is the one, through Jesus Christ, who has created all things, and he is the one who has ordered this life, and he is the one who gets to say and has said how it works and how it doesn't work. He is the one who determines this. And so if you're somebody who wants true knowledge and who wants true wisdom, true understanding, who wants true community, who wants to be knit together in love with all of these riches that come, then you need to hear this as to what's happening because the Apostle Paul is going through something that you and I know nothing about. The Apostle Paul says here, chapter 
1, verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Just stop right there for a second. It's said that he's in a prison. He's writing this letter, and he's saying this. He's saying, I'm rejoicing over the fact that I am suffering. Now that alone, like we could stop there and we could just give a sermon on simply that, like rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Like how does that happen on this earth? How does the Apostle Paul come to a place where he's able to say, I am in the midst of unimaginable pain. I'm being treated inhumanely. I'm locked up endless hours of the day and yet I am rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. So he's saying this, he's saying, uh, not only am I rejoicing in the midst of suffering, but I see my suffering as being for God's people, for the church. And so he goes on and he says, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, what in the world did he just say? Because what it, sounds, what, he, uh, what it sounds like he just said is this, is that Christ's afflictions, his suffering, his going to the cross, his having being wounded and pierced for us was not sufficient. That's what it sounds like he's saying. It sounds like he's somehow uh, denigrating what Christ has done for us. And so people get hung up on this and they say, well, it, it seems like I need to add to what Christ has done. I need to, in a masochistic way, uh, cause myself to suffer so that I can make it to heaven uh, and in that I'm completing what Christ has done. And so if I have to do some work in order to get to God, if I have to do some work in order to be with Jesus, uh, then that's, that's what this means. That's what people can sometimes say, but that's not what Paul is saying because it would deny what other, uh, other passages in Scripture, which I won't go into right now, but many passages talking about how the work of Christ is finished, how when he, when, when he finished it once for all, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and it's finished, it's complete. He's done. God's uh, sacrifice through Jesus Christ is finished. And so what in the world is Paul saying here? He's saying, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. No, what Paul believes is this, and we know this from having walked through the book of Romans and other passages. What Paul believes is this, is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is absolutely and completely sufficient. That means it's been paid in full. That means that you can't add anything to it. That means that you can't do anything to make it better. That means that you can't work any. You can't add any amount of suffering and affliction to your life to actually make it work in your life. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying that what Christ has finished on the cross, he is working to extend to you. What Christ completely finished on the cross is that he's participating with Christ. And he's saying this, I'm going to participate in my own life and I'm going to fill up in my flesh the only thing that's lacking, which is nothing regarding salvation, but in extending it to you. Paul says this, I'm in prison because I'm doing God's work. Look at what he says here. He says, for the sake of his body that is the church, he says, of which I became a minister 
according to the stewardship or the responsibility from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul is saying to us this morning that the Christian life is not about achieving happiness according to the American dream that is oftentimes our Bible. Paul is saying that's not what happiness is. That's not what true joy is. That's not what true rejoicing is. True rejoicing is this. Paul says, in my own life, I'm sitting in prison, I'm being abused, and it is for God's church. It's for God's people. So to our Christians here this morning, understand this. Have you allowed the American dream to slip into the way that you serve God? Have you allowed the endless pursuit of happiness to be the thing that you are after? Because let me help you understand something. That if you're called and if you are God's and, and if you are somebody who believes then what's going to be true of you is this, is an understanding that we are all the time filling up in our flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ as we extend the, mes the, the message of God's word to God's people. And it causes suffering. But it's not just empty suffering, it's rejoicing in the midst of suffering. It's rejoicing. It's, it's saying, I can make it through this. I, I, can, I can allow this to take place because of this. Because I know that people are hearing about Jesus through the things that I'm doing, even the most seemingly minuscule tasks that you may be doing for God. Are, in essence, you saying, I am filling up in my flesh what is lacking, which is nothing regarding salvation, but it is everything in regards to communicating the word of God to God's people to help them to understand. And more than that, to, to, to God's people whom we have not met yet. That goes for every area of our church, every ministry. But even beyond just being at the church on Sundays, it goes into how you live your daily life. And the way that you suffer. I spent time talking to someone this last week who said, I'm not sure what I'm going to do about this situation. And they had a moral dilemma. And if they went this direction, what would happen is this, is that they, they would, it would end up costing them more, more money. If they, if they went this route that said, I'm going to be moral in this. Or they could say, I'm not really sure that it matters so much. There was a way to kind of, well, I'm not sure I really have responsibility with this. And so the, the question was, should I respond in this way, even though it may not matter a whole lot in, in being moral in this situation, or could I just kind of, it's kind of a toss-up, so I'll just let it go. And here's the thing. Paul says, I'm filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And I'm doing this so that I can extend the word of God to people who need to hear about Jesus. Do you understand that every day in your life, in the decisions that you're making, in the things that you're doing, 
you get the opportunity to say, I am pursuing the American dream and happiness at all costs. Or you can say this, I am pursuing filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And that's why I endure. That's why I endure. That's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm going in this direction. That's why I'm, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I am setting this aside. I am letting this go. And I'm saying, I, I don't care what happens. I, I'm filling up in my flesh what's lacking. The Apostle Paul has it down. And he's driven by something. He's driven by something more than the pursuit of happiness. Let's, let's ask this question. What if Paul were pursuing pleasure? What if Paul were pursuing his career? What if Paul were pursuing happiness? What if Paul was pursuing the American dream at all costs? We would not be reading this letter today. We would not know of this incredible martyr for Christ who laid down his life living for Jesus Christ. Now I want to ask you the same question. What if you set aside all those things and you say, and you say this, I'm going to set aside my pursuit of the American dream and I'm going to stop telling myself lies that say this, this is making me unhappy and so I, it, it shouldn't be here because God wants me to be happy, right? Because Paul sits there and he says, he sees the why. He sees the reason why behind what he's doing. And he sees this goal of people who are becoming mature believers in Christ. And he sees this goal of people having ultimate hope in him. And he says, I want that more than anything else. And so I'm willing to forgo anything that is of pleasure or happiness or whatever that comes from this world and I'm looking forward to something else. So what's he looking forward to? He says this. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And what about the word of God being fully known? The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. He says, I'm, I'm trying to communicate something. And it's so that the word of God would be fully known. Now, I, I want to challenge some of us here. Whether you grew up in church or whether you didn't, there's an idea that we have in our head that we understand what God is all about. That we understand who he is and that we understand what he's like. And more often than not, we are wrong. And the reason why we're wrong is because we have imprinted on God and we've said, this is who you are and this is who you should be. This is the kind of God that I want to worship. And so that's what I want. But the Apostle Paul's aim and his goal in the midst of his suffering is to make known the word of God fully and to reveal something which previously had not been revealed. And he's talking about the Old Testament. That there was this idea that was shrouded. 
There was this thing that was shrouded that people couldn't see and they couldn't understand and they just didn't have this knowledge of it. They knew that there was something there and they knew that they were trusting in something, but there was this, there was this mystery that was kind of shrouding it. And Paul says, I want you to know fully the word of God. So set aside all of your ideas of what you think the word of God is or what God is like. And I want you to experience the mystery. The mystery. And what is this mystery? Let me tell you what this mystery is before I, before I tell you what it actually is. Jonathan Edwards says that there's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and then actually tasting honey and knowing something of its sweetness. And what he means by this is he's, he's saying this. He said, there's lots of people who, who have ideas about God and they say that God is sweet. Like I know something of his sweetness and I, I know that honey is sweet. I know that God is good. Or I know, I think I know some things about God. But Jonathan Edwards says this, is that like it's a huge difference between knowing that honey is sweet or, or thinking that it's sweet or, or thinking something about that and then actually tasting it and experiencing it and countering it. Like coming into full contact with the idea of honey. Like there's a difference between like knowing about God and then, there's a, and then there's a complete difference between that and truly experiencing him. Because there's a lot of us here and perhaps even throughout the day, I'm like, I'm, I know about God, but I'm not experiencing him right now. But then there's a lot of us that grew up in the church or we have a religious background or something and it's just simply just head knowledge about God, but there's never been an experience. And I mean like a life-altering experience that takes your life and says, and it, and it removes things out of you. And you come to a place where you say, I had desires in this direction, and I may still falter in that, but the truth is this, I no longer want that. Like I had desires to always make myself happy and to pursue happiness, but now I have this other desire, and that is that I want to make God happy. Like I had this way of living, and, which was just head knowledge, and I was constantly under this threat of God letting me go or God being disappointed with me. And there's these tapes that play in your head that say, I, I'm, I'd never... I'd never be acceptable to God. I've just, I've just done too many things. I've just been in too many places. I'd never be acceptable to God because of this thing that happened to me. I'm damaged. I'm dirty. But you've got to understand something. That, that information is false. It's false information. And the difference is this, is that you've got to experience God for all that he is. Paul's not sitting in a prison being abused for no reason. He's sitting in a prison and he's saying, I'm suffering, but I'm rejoicing because of this because people are going to go from being someone who just has a head knowledge to somebody who has true experience. And so what you have to look at here is this. 
the mystery, like there needs to be some buildup, like there should be like, like a drum roll, and there should be like this, you know, I don't know what it is, but there, there should be something behind us that, that as we're saying this, like the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his people, to his saints, to them. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. To them, God chose to take everyday people without a religious background. And he chose to take people who don't know anything about him, who, who feel like they're outsiders, and he, and he said this, I want you to know something, to experience the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. I mean, listen to this for a second. Does anybody here know what that means? Does anybody here have an idea, or is it just honey that we know about. I know about honey, but I haven't tasted it. I know about some things, but I haven't truly tasted it because Paul's excited here, and he says, the mystery that's been hidden for ages, it's now gonna be revealed to everybody else. It's gonna be revealed to the Gentiles, and God is going to work through everyday people, and he's going to be seen, and he's going to be experienced, and here is what it is. It's Christ in you. The hope of glory. You know what happens when happiness is pursued and pursued and pursued and pursued? And there's failure after failure after failure. Do you know what takes place? It just, it thwarts happiness. In fact, there's a man by the name of Viktor Frankl, who is uh, very famous, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And his, his quote is this, it is the very pursuit of happiness that thwarts happiness. What you need to know about Viktor Frankl is this, is that he, in the early 40s, was a psychologist, and he was actually very successful. In fact, he wrote a, uh, a, uh, a paper at the age of 16 that I believe Sigmund Freud, he sent to Sigmund Freud, and Sigmund Freud had it published for him. This guy was very successful, and he was growing in success as a psychologist, but he was a Jew, and he ultimately was sent to the Nazi death camps. And his experience at these Nazi death camps was absolutely horrific, as you can imagine. But what he found as a psychologist, as he observed other people, was that there was a time where they, they would be hopeful. And they would continue to be hopeful, but then pretty soon it, it would begin to, to wane. And it really what he said was, was the worst part about it is that their internment or their, their jail sentence was endless. They had no idea when the war would end. They had no idea when all of this would come to an end. And so there was this hopelessness 
that would come over them. And they, they would just be hopeless and continue to be hopeless and more hopeless. And then pretty soon, what would take place is this, is that they oftentimes would get rewards. And some of it was a reward for food or a reward uh, via cigarettes. And they knew that somebody began to slip down that road of hopelessness. And it wasn't going to be long before they died because they began, instead of trading their cigarettes for food because they were starving to death, they just began to smoke their cigarettes. And they just wanted to die with some comfort in their life. They just wanted to die comfortable. And so they would lay on their bed and they wouldn't get up. It didn't matter how, how much someone would yell at them or what, what would take place. They would just lay there. And then pretty soon they would just die. And Viktor Frankl said this. He said, these people had lost hope. They had lost hope because they, they were after something that was just in the here and now. They were after something and, and, and it just, it dissipated because they didn't know how long their internment was going to be and they didn't know how long and they, they just decided, I can't deal with this any longer and I can't put up with it. And so his work was spent in trying to show people that they've got to have this other type of drive in them. They can't be going after happiness all the time. They have to go after something even deeper than this. They, they can't be about themselves experiencing something. They have to be about a family member that they want to go see. Or they have to be about of an unfinished work. They have to go after something and they have, to, they have to go strive for some other ideal and just hope I can, if I can get out of here, then I can finish my work and I could do this and I could do that. But ultimately, what ended up taking place is that when those who survived, when they finally got out, the people who had this ideal and they had this idea of, I'm, I just want to get back to my family member, but the truth is they'd come and they'd knock on the door and the family member might not be there. Or the truth is they'd come back and, and all of their dreams and their hopes would just die away because they had this ideal in their mind of what it be, would be like. You know what they were ultimately searching for? It's what every single one of us is searching for. There's this ideal of happiness and joy and meaning that we're striving for in life. And when that's ultimately not met, we lose hope. See, God is the creator of all things and he's created a way for you to have hope. He's created a way for you to truly experience him and he's created a way for you to be on a road to experiencing that. And that's what Paul is talking about here. When he says this, he says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, let me, let's, just, let's just talk about hope here for a second. Hope is this. It's having confidence that there's, that there's something in the future. It's, it's an assured confidence that says this, that I have something to look forward to. There's, there's a hope. It's a pleasant hope. Paul calls that glory here. It's the hope of glory. And by glory, we can say this. Like all of your hopes, your desires for relationship, your desires for sex, your desires for money, your desires for fame, your desires for fortune, your desires for all of those things, ultimately, 
are fulfilled in this one thing, in glory. Not in the same way that you want them to be. All of those things are fulfilled in a different way in this idea of glory. And Paul says this, that if you know Jesus, and like if you have a relationship with him, that something that you're going to get is this, is that there is going to be a hope that nobody can take from you. And when you come back from unimaginable suffering, thinking there's going to be an end to this, and I'm going to see my loved one, and I'm going to experience this, you don't have to worry about whether it's going to be there. Because our ultimate hope is found in this. Christ in you. Our hope is a confidence in this glory. And we get that confidence because of Christ in me. Now, I love what Louis Giglio says. He says, it's not Christ in me, or I'm, I'm sorry, it is Christ in me, but it's not Christ with me. It's not Christ next to me. It's not me with just, okay, I got my eyes on Jesus. It's not me kind of going to church and saying, I, I'm, I'm pretty good with a good man upstairs. It's not me just saying, okay, it's me and Jesus and the car. Maybe I'm letting him steer. Maybe I'm not. He doesn't have his permit yet. It's just me and Jesus. No, that's not what it is. That's a, that's a horrible analogy. Because the, what really is the hope of glory, what really brings you hope in a way that God has defined is by Christ being in you. Christ being in you, working through you, changing your desires causing you to be somebody who you don't know yourself to be, causing you to be somebody new who's made into a new creation, causing you to be somebody who can say this, I set aside the American dream and I set aside all the ideas of happiness and sexual pleasure and financial success and fame, and all of those things, and I'm setting them aside because Christ is in me. He's a part of me. He's in my life, and he can change me from the inside out. And it is having him in me that causes me to have the greatest hope that there ever was. And it's not a hope that's circumstantial. It's not a hope that's conditional. It's not a hope that's dependent on you or on any of your loved ones or on anything that you can do or on anything that you haven't done because it's Christ in you. And that is the hope of glory. Now, what does this promise us? He says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He's saying this. He's saying, when you get the idea that Christ in you is not a conditional promise, when you understand that Christ in you is your ultimate hope, 
and that no amount of striving, no amount of success is ever going to outweigh what Christ does in and through you. When you get that understanding, what happens is this. There's maturity in Christ. But remember what else he said later in the passage, in the next chapter. He says, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding with the knowledge of God's mystery. He says, you're going to understand things that people don't understand. I watched a, a, a video on Netflix the other day with Christopher Hitchens and uh, another fellow, I can't remember his name right now. But it, it, it's absurd to me how many times they stop and they say, we just don't know, but we believe that this is what took place. And we, 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 we don't know, but we, but we know. And, I, and I'm saying, but, but your we know is based on we don't know. Like, you weren't there, and I wasn't there. And I don't know any dinosaurs or whatever that have written documents, but I do have a document that says this. This is as close as we're going to get to understanding exactly what took place and exactly what life means to us. And you might say, well, I, I, I choose to base my knowledge on science, but science is, is simply based on what's being discovered right here and right now. And there's only hypothesis and there's ideas that various scientists have come up with, and there's innumerable plausible arguments that have taken place. But Paul says this, that when you have Christ in you, that brings you hope, and that hope brings maturity, and that maturity brings something that's invaluable. It's knowledge, and it's understanding, and it's wisdom. And he says it's more than that. It's all knowledge. It's all wisdom. It's all understanding. To understand this, that there are things I don't know and that I don't understand. And yes, science proves many of those things. But here's the thing. I have real wisdom and real knowledge and understanding because the God of the universe, the one who created it, is telling me this is the way that it works. He says... For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. You know what Paul's saying there? You know, there's a lot of times that, that we can hear a sermon and we can say, you know, I, I've, I've really got to try harder at this. You know, I've, I've really... I've really got to make up my mind. Now, there's some good things that you could say. Now, reading your Bible and praying and, and being with God's people, those are good things and you should do that. But here's the thing, what, what Paul is talking about, living in this maturity with this wisdom and, and Christ in you, let me just tell you, it's impossible. The Christian life is impossible. The Christian life and and. And living for Jesus, there's only one guy that could do it. And that was Jesus. There's only one guy who could really make it happen. And they killed him. And so what Paul is saying here is he, he's saying, like, when I'm coming to you with the hope of glory, I'm not bringing to you a, 
a prescription to live. Now, certainly there are things prescribed in the scriptures, but right now what we're talking about, we're talking about theologically, we're talking about this idea. Paul's saying, I'm not saying that, that this is some kind of prescription for you to just go out and you to just handle this and you to make this happen. What he's saying is this. He's saying, even I have Christ. And the way that I work is not in my own strength but it's through Christ in me. For this I toil. This is, this is what I'm working for. What I'm working for is that I am struggling and I'm enduring and I'm working so hard, but it's with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Do you understand this? This means two things. It means that I can have a New Year's resolution to make things happen, as it were, with my relationship with God and so forth, and I can try really hard and really hard, and as long as I'm doing that in my own energy, if I achieve my goal, what happens is I end up having pride, but if I miss my goal, I end up having self-loathing. Paul says this, that when I'm working hard and when I'm struggling towards Jesus, when I achieve what I've gone after, what I know is this, I'm struggling with his energy, and so I have no reason or no way. It's, it's unthinkable for me to be prideful about that because it's his energy, but when I fail, when I fail, I know this, that he's forgiven me and that he, I don't have that in my life right now, but I have Christ in me to change me from the inside out. Are you going after happiness with abandon? And the way that you serve, is, is it about your happiness or is it about understanding this, that my hope isn't here but it's in Christ. My hope isn't here. This isn't all that there is. And I want to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Are you somebody who's, who's going after happiness in the American dream at all costs? And so you've gotten yourself into such debt because what's rooted in the desire and in the need for the things that you have is this idea of this is the American dream and I should have this. And this has been prescribed to me because, duh, I'm an American. And I should have that. And so your pursuit of happiness and your pursuit of the American dream and your hopes being set and something that's conditional and something that can be here today and gone tomorrow and ultimately will be leads you to despair. It will lead you to despair. Or are you somebody who says this? Happiness is fleeting. It comes and it goes. I feel this way. And so I, you know, I, I just don't really want to do that. Or, happiness is fleeting. But rejoicing 
and participating with the sufferings of Christ is forever. Rejoicing knowing this, that my hope is not found in myself or in the American dream, but it is found with Christ in me. And he is the one who works in me to do his work. Do you have faith for that this morning? That's what the scriptures promise. True knowledge and wisdom and understanding, maturity. God brings that to you. But you can't come to him and say, give me happiness and I'll stick around. Because it's not what you think it is. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I, I think that there's many of us here who would say, that uh, in any given moment, like we have these various thoughts of, like if we're a Christian, like there are points in our life when we say, you know, I want to suffer for Christ in this area, but, but Lord, we, we all have to admit that there are many areas of our life where we have just been fully engrossed in the American dream and this idea that we need happiness above all else. But Lord, I pray that we'd see what, even people like Viktor Frankl see, and that is that it is the very pursuit of happiness that thwarts happiness because it's unattainable. And it's the very pursuit of even seemingly meaningful things that ultimately come to an end because they're conditional. And they fall away and they may keep us alive for a while, but Lord, you are the ultimate hope. And our, our glory is found in yours. Like the hope that we have and the, the only hope that we have in life is that you've promised yourself. You haven't promised us riches and you haven't promised us all of these things separate from you. But God, you have promised us you. God, so we can, we can go with confidence knowing this, that our hope is secured and our hope is final and the glory of God awaits. The glory of God awaits us. Lord, it is a future hope, but it's also a present hope as we glorify you with our lives and say, I am willing to undergo the suffering that Jesus underwent on the cross for my sins. I'm... I'm willing to suffer with him, extending the message of forgiveness and grace through the gospel. So Lord, we ask you for this, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.